Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, thank you for finding us in a sea of podcasts. We're glad we washed up on your shore. It is Downtown, the podcast brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell here. Welcome into episode number 210. As always, a couple of terrific conversations for you this week on the show. A little bit later on, we talk with writer Josh Karp, flashing back to the cultural events of 1972. Television shows, music, films. Always enjoy talking with Josh about that great decade. But uh, up first, the man that Tony Kornheiser called the quintessential American sports writer, Bob Ryan who is back with a terrific new book written with Bill Chuck. And it's based on Bob's more than 40 years of keeping score at every baseball game he has been to, regardless of level. The book is called In Scoring Position, and we had a blast talking about it with Bob Ryan here on Downtown. What a wonderful read this was. I had so much fun uh, reading it throughout the weekend. First of all, how did you end up getting together with Bill Chuck on this? He called me up in April of 2020. We're acquaintances. We weren't no buddy-buddy. We've only been in each other's company three or four times, all at Fenway. But we knew each other. And he called me. That was the year that I started a daily tweet of the 1977 Red Sox season that I had covered, my first year covering the Red Sox beat. And I tweeted what was going on on that date in 1977. And he contacted me and said, you're going to do this every day? This is like in, in April, early COVID, you know? And I said, yeah, oh, okay. So then he got to talking about the subject of my score books, the fact that I had that book. And I have you know, all the books because I've kept score at every game that I've attended since 1977 at any level, home or away, um, vacation, whatever. I've over 1,500 games encompassing nine baseball writers' score books. And he said, you got a book in there. I said, oh, come on, you're crazy. He said, no, 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 I really think you've got a book out there, in there. So he said, why don't you run the idea by some people, you know, who are responsible. And I did, and I got a positive response. I, I took it to my agent, Andrew Blauner, and he, and he thought it was a good idea, and he stopped it, and Triumph Books took it. And here we are. Uh, the book is for real, and, and there would be no book on two levels without Bill Chuck. It was his idea, number one. I don't know that I ever would have come up with this idea to, to turn these score books into a book. And, and his, his writing collaboration on the book is, is, is absolutely a perfect uh, adjunct. It's partnership. We have an excellent uh, double play combo here. Uh, I write, and then he, he writes even more interesting stuff that he found uh, or about the people that are involved in the book. Well, so many great games through the years. How difficult was the process of choosing which ones to include in the book? That was the hardest part because writing was nothing easy. I never had an easier project, never had more fun ever. That's the only time I ever used the word fun in writing a book. No one, any author will tell you that writing is normally a complete torture, uh, writing a book. And I always liken it to having a giant term paper hanging over your head every day. <laughs> this was different. Uh, so choosing which games absolutely was the hardest thing. So we say, Hey, yeah, volume two, you know, ha ha. But, um, yeah, that was the hard part. But there's over, uh, uh, there are 150 give or take games involved in here. Uh, and, and, um, Mer Red Sox, playoff games, World Series games, uh, uh, neutral games that I happen to attend in cities such as New York, Chicago, Anaheim, Seattle, 
uh, Baltimore, whatever um, games that I would have uh, attended, uh, Philadelphia, and uh, so there you go. Uh, there's all kinds of different stuff in here. And there are some very important games in baseball history, not just Red Sox history, but I guess the the big takeaway from the book for me is not that we didn't know this already as lovers of the game, but every game has its own wonderful story. And here's the thing I, th- I want to stress. This is one person, one baseball fan's collection and reminiscence and, and uh, a remembrance of his specific 1500 game experience. Yours, every one of your listeners, uh, if, if you could have your own 1500 game experience of different games and you would have the source for uh, your own book, baseball is so much richer than the other three. And, you know, no offense to soccer. I'll throw it in there. The other four. The other four put together in terms of improbable stuff, uh, historical stuff, oddities. Uh, You've never seen this before. I saw one last night, by the way. We saw one last night. It's seldom seen. And a matter of fact, um, uh, who was commentator? It's Yukos, I guess, said, i never seen this. And that was that force out of third base on, yeah. on Martinez after the <laughs> ball was not caught in center field, but the run had scored with the bases loaded. He had a dance, and he was forced, thrown out on a force play, 8-5 at third. Uh, it was a force play. Anyway, stuff like that. There's all kinds of stuff in here, and you're right. There's historical stuff, uh, most notably Reggie Jackson's three-home run game. But the kicker here is my anecdotes. See, I've got personal anecdotes involved in some of these things, and that's one of them. The best stories is, is how I got the book signed. Uh, yes, and I'm, one of my favorite stories in the book is about Reggie Jackson and you playing horse with him. Yeah, that was in 1986 when I went out to cover the ALC. And, uh, the, 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 the Globe sent me out in the final week of the 86 season to, to get informa- stories for the preview section, gather all kinds of stories. And the, while I was there, one of the games that I attended, Reggie, a uh, Saturday afternoon, a beautiful Saturday, and it was like a 12 noon start. And Reggie hits a home run. I think they won like 2 nothing. I have to look back in my own book. But Reggie hits a home run. Reggie and I had a good relationship. He invites me back to his place in Contra Costa to see his collection of vintage cars, which, which is, you know, if you, I'm not a car guy. I'm, I'm going to turn down that invitation. You crazy? <laughs> so I follow him back down to his place because the game's – oh, by the way, the game's in two hours and like 10 minutes over. <laughs> so so we get back to his place by about 4 o'clock. And he shows me the car thing. And now he's got a backboard out there in the driveway. And he said, let's play horse. And we did. And I'm beating him for a while until he says, well, I'm not losing to any rider. So then he, he, he goes into his trick shot, which, well, trick, which was a spinning banker. Of course, you've got to call everything. And he, he finally come out behind, came from behind and beat me. Uh, and and uh, he wasn't going to lose to any rider. <laughs> We're talking with Bob Ryan. His new book is called In Scoring Position. Uh, one of the first games that I came upon in the book, I paused for a moment and said, oh, wait a second, I was there too, and that was the debut of Don Ossie. I was at that game. Oh, how about that game? And he strikes out 11 in his debut, and he never struck out 11 again, never struck out 10 again. This is the kind of information that Bill provides. So I wrote about the game, and they, they called him up in a pennant race, and, and, and they weren't going well. It was, it was double pressure. He, he was asked to be a stopper, and he was in that game, and he had a good uh, first year. He got he wound up in the Eckersley trade, you know. And uh, uh, but uh, yeah, that was a, I, I'm glad oh, that was great. See, that's it. Uh, you know, you, you never know who's going who's going to be. <laughs> I love the story as well about the Joe Cowley no hitter. Oh, that's a priceless one. I get out there to, on this trip in Anaheim, and the first night I'm there. 
which was the I got it down here. Uh, oh yeah, the, the, the September nineteenth, nineteen eighty six, and Joe Cowley throws a no hit, one run game, ugliest no hitter. Not only did he walk seven. He threw 69 strikes and 69 balls <laughs> and still somehow managed to throw, you know, one of those no-hitters are so circumstantial. And after the game, the uh, the Angels just poo-pooed it. I mean, the White Sox, I mean, just poo-pooed it. Yeah, I mean, the Angels, I'm sorry, he was a White Sox. They just poo-pooed it, you know, oh, and, um, because they were going to win the pennant. They didn't worry about it. So he throws this sloppy no-hitter. And after the game, I'm having a beer after the game at the hotel with Ed Sherman of the Chicago Trib. And who's standing across the bar from us? Joe Cowley, by himself, which yeah. probably tells you, tells you something. <laughs> so we, we went over and said hi and bought him a beer. And I had my book, and I, he signed the book. And as, as the, the kicker and the, the punchline, he never won another game yeah. in the major leagues. <laughs> he, he contracted Steve Blast disease. He couldn't get the ball over the plate. He went. They, they let him go. They sent him to the Phillies. The Phillies tried him. He, he washed out. His, he never. That was the last game he ever won in the major leagues. Was a no hitter. Uh, stuff like that. You can't make this stuff up. I love reading uh, about one of the great showdowns of the '90s and a guy that uh, we don't hear much anymore about, but had such a great Red Sox career, albeit a short one. Mo Vaughn going head to head with Albert Bell when both of them were at the top of their game. Yep, in September of '95, when they both was clear at that point, they were the two MVP candidates. And we go out to Cleveland, and Mo hits a big home run in that game, a clutch home run, and uh, you know that was nice. He does get the MVP, even though. Uh, Albert's stats were better. There was no doubt. Mo, Mo, Mo got as much for being Mo and, as, as Albert mm. didn't get it for being Albert, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure about that. And, uh, uh, yeah, that was fun, though. But we really ran with that ball that night. We all you said that that was symbol that, you know, God was a, on Mo's side. We found to figure something like that. And I'm so happy to see that you included the debut with the Red Sox of Carl Everett. Wasn't that something? He hits a couple homers. He switch hits homers. First guy ever did it. Leading that, launching that tempestuous season when in the beginning of the year, as you remember, he, he could have run for mayor. Every, he, he, mm. You couldn't get him out and clutch. Then by the middle of the season, he's throwing that incredibly stupid juvenile temper tantrum with Ron Culpa at the plate. And, and uh, that was the beginning of the end of Carl Everett at the Red Sox. And, of course, uh, you know, well, I personally will never forgive him for spoiling Mike Messina's perfect game. Which, uh, and you talk about it uh, eloquently in the book. Uh, I watched it on television. One of the best performances I've ever seen. 26 up, 26 down, and then Carl Everett. And two strikes. Yeah. And, and, and two strikes, and he, and he scoops one, drops one in the left. And, of course, Cohn pitched a wonderful game. You know, it was a one nothing game. David Cohn, who had thrown the last perfect game before that, was the losing pitcher with with a wonderful performance of his own. But of all people, I mean, and of course, I I raised, I raised the question: if you're, you know, you're you're a Red Sox fan, of course. If you didn't want to see a perfect game, you know, I, I'm I'm I can't relate to that. I I wanted that perfect game. I mean, I've because I of course I have never been to a no no hit no run. Which I mentioned a couple of times in this book. Nor is my my friend and partner Bill Chuck. We've never been to a organized baseball. The last no hitter I attended, no hit no run, was in prep school in 1963. That's a long wait. You also saw another great pitching performance from one of the most colorful people uh, in the game. Even though he lost the game, Bartolo Colon's unique two hitter. Yeah, two home runs. <laughs> <laughs> As all, but there was so much stuff like that. 
that's in there. Jeff Sellers losing a one-hitter in a year when he got shut out like five or six times. And, um, you know, um, I'll tell you what, I'm going to mention one of my favorites uh, is because this has never been done before or since, and I have it, and that is Scott Hatterberg. Yeah. And Scott Hatterberg <laughs> on August 6, 2001, hit into, in successive at-bats, a triple play and hit a grand slam. <laughs> and no man in the history of baseball has ever done that. And then the, the subplot is Brian Dahlbeck was on base both times. <laughs> That's an incredible story. Uh, so you dedicate the book uh, to your dad. He's the one that uh, really set you off on this life path. It, it's totally the reason why I'm, I got involved, and the DNA is there. And then how's this for, I mean, you can't make stuff up department. Uh, I dedicate the book to my father. And the uh, book comes out on May 10th, 2022, which happened to be the 65th anniversary of his death when I was 11 years old. Wow. And, uh, and I didn't even process that or put two and two together until the day before. I guess I might subconsciously didn't want to confront it uh, or whatever, because May 10th is always in my head because of that mm. date of my father. But uh, I, when I saw that the publication date, which was pushed back a month from the original of April 9th, was May 10th, I never put those two together until I was walking our dog on Monday. And it said, oh, my God, May 10th. And that's the first time I put it together. How chilling. So that was kind of that was kind of poignant for me. Absolutely. You know, I, it's a lost art. I don't see people keeping score uh, like I used to. And uh, as you mentioned, they don't even sell scorecards at, at Fenway Park anymore, which is... Don't even sell them. You can get, you know, I'm sure, I guess that, that program you buy outside, maybe it has it, I'm not sure. But no, it used to be you could get a cheap scorecard at nothing else. And, and um, uh, no, people don't do it. And, and you know, I do it. And um, I've heard from a few people who claim they do it, you know. But you look around, you never see anybody... Uh, no, no, ever uh, do it. But it's abundantly clear in the book. But but what is it about keeping score that's added to your enjoyment of the game? For well, all these number years? one, it keeps you in the game. It forces you to concentrate. So you know, I don't go to the bathroom. I don't go to the concession stand. Once I get in the seat, I'm there. That's it. Period. You know, I take care of everything before. So I'm not going anywhere. That's it. And I'm not. I don't. And I wouldn't have the hands to handle a hot dog or or or, or, <laughs> or you know or beer or whatever. So you know that that's fine. Number one. But number two. Uh, I, I love having the idea that I never dreamed that they would turn into a book, but I reference them frequently for fun, just to see. Mm. Like I'm sitting at a game, the book I'm working on right now, I've been using since 2017. So I like to go back, oh, what was happening a year ago? What was happening two years ago uh, on or about this date? And you have it and you look around, it's fun. And it's fun to do. I, I enjoy, you know, I enjoy it. And it, it's, uh, I feel, I would feel naked. I, I, I to me, I cannot imagine going to a game and for me and not keeping score. And uh, I know that's odd, but I was the only kid in my block who knew the infield fly rule when I was eight years old, too. So, you know, that was odd, too. <laughs> well, it's a wonderful celebration of the game we love. Congratulations on a wonderful book. And as always, thanks for coming on with us to talk about it. Uh, that's great. I appreciate that, Rich. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bob Ryan, his new book with Bill Chuck in scoring position. His 40-year love affair with baseball, which is, as he pointed out, more like 70-year love affair with baseball. <laughs> we'll take a break for a word from Cross Insurance and come back to the 70s, specifically 50 years ago, 1972, 
with writer Josh Karp. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Oh, they'll be playing that in schools all across America soon. Alice from 1972 and schools out as we go back 50 years to talk about the music, the movies, and the TV shows of 1972 with our friend Josh Karp, author of the book of Feudal and Stupid Gesture, co-producer of the film about Orson Welles' making of his final film, The Other Side of the Wind, called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Here's Josh Karp on Downtown. Are you ready to make some radio magic? Uh, always. <laughs> uh, well, you know, we don't, we don't have a lot of imagination here, so things like uh, uh, big round numbers, 50th anniversaries, are uh, it's easy for us to think about. And, and we're 50 years out from 1972. Of course, you weren't even born then, so you just... Oh, I was born. <laughs> just barely. I was I was a lad of six. Oh, my goodness. Well, I wasn't... It's not like I was in college or anything like that, but I was... Uh, what was I? I was about to turn 14, I guess, uh, back then. But uh, either way, an interesting year, and I was looking at uh, oh, music and movies and television shows, and like a lot of years in the 1970s, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. <laughs> Always. And sometimes the worst part was the best part. Yeah. Uh, well, let's let's start with music. Man, I looked at some of the hits from that year. There was some great music. Uh, Backstabbers by the OJs, the Rolling Stones' Tumbling Dice, uh, uh, Neil Young's Harvest came out that year. There was some pretty good music. At, absolutely, and there was some great weird music. Right there was "Puppy Love" oh. by Donny Osmond. There, and, and you know, was, being being a guy who just listened to the radio constantly during that period, and I, it wasn't that I hated the Osmonds specifically that they had their appeal, but I always felt as being about the same age as they were. I thought Donny Osmond is the price I have to pay for the Jackson Five. <laughs> it seemed like. There would be an endless number of bands like that at that time. Oh, then the the, the, the DeFranco family, family, family would come along, and oh, Lord. Yeah, no. It was a stiff price to pay, though. Oh, it was yeah. indeed. Yeah, Puppy Love. There were some there were some bad ones uh, from, from Donnie back then. But I don't know. I'm not sure in my mind if there was much that could compare with a song that, I, frankly, I'm surprised Elvis didn't record because it was in that period when he was not feeling very good about his life and, and his family situation. Uh, Wayne Newton's classic from that year, Daddy, Don't You Walk So Fast. Oh, right. there were all kinds. There was like, yeah, Daddy, don't, there was that, and there was there were just these weird, like, there was, I don't even know who sang this, there was a song called I'm Stone in Love With You, which is like the most 1972 title for a song. Oh, the stylistics, a great song. The stylistics, see, there you know. I mean, any anybody who can work in a lyric like, if I could, I'd like to build the first house on the moon. 
was that there would be no was that there would be no something and no population boom. I oh yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Mac Davis. Oh, a lot of Mac Davis that year. Don't yeah. get hooked on me. Yeah. Um, also, now I don't know. There seemed to be a, a clear dividing line among those who liked the song and those who never need to hear it again. It was a year that began with American Pie riding the top of the charts. Right, right. Which we've, which there's been no. It's, God, it, that I can't believe that song is sixty years old now. That's amazing. That's like I probably have heard that song almost as much as any. It's just it's like you know, you've continually been on the radio for sixty years. That's that's impressive. Fifty years. We also had schools out for summer that year. School's out, and I, you know, I remember that must have come out in the spring of that year because I have vivid memories of my junior high school principal, who was a yeah, nice man, but the old school type of principal, and it seemed to be a, a much older guy at the time. And all of a sudden, blasting through the speakers on the last day, he played Alice Cooper's "School's Out," and we all yeah. looked at each other like, "Oh my God! You know, this this guy's been here for thirty years, and he's cool enough to do that." Is he drinking? No, that. Right. <laughs> he must have been immensely relieved to not see any of you for the next three months. Oh, yeah, there's no question about that. Also, one of the great musical injustices of all time in 1972, the only number one song of Chuck Berry's career. Which was that? My Dingaling. My Dingaling? I knew it was going to be my Dingaling. <laughs> Isn't that just the. Injustice is the only word I think that applies. That is, wow. But apparently from what I've read, you know, while, while music fans were horrified that that was the only number one, uh, Barry loved it, apparently loved doing it, loved the fact that it got him to number one and sure. would perform that thing in concert even while he was in his 80s, which made it even stranger. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. That, no, that I, I had no idea that was only number one. But the second you said it was only number one, I thought, oh, my God, it's going to be my ding-a-ling. And also That's... probably the only number one song about a rat, Michael Jackson's Ben. Ben. There was a whole, that whole, like, there was all that weird kind of stuff then, you know, like, that, like I don't think that, you know, nobody sings songs about, has sung a song about a rat since. I would think that got anywhere. No, you know no. there was it was a it was, it was and and um, indicative of a very strange time <laughs> in our history. And uh, this and I didn't know this at the time. I don't think because uh, apparently Casey Kasem didn't mention it because that was where I got all my inside information at thirteen years old. But um, sure, big hit for Three Dog Night that year was actually written in celebration of the Brown versus the Board of Education decision by actor Alan Arkin's father. And that's uh, the song Black and White. <laughs> it was written by Alan Arkin's father? Yes. That's fantastic. That's so good. I, I, the song is, I, I remember very, very well. Um, but never knew that Alan Arkin's father or that it was based on Brown versus the Board of Education. Yeah, I mean, a couple people recorded it. It was um, more of a folk song, I guess, originally, but it never had much much airplay anywhere. And then Three Dog Night or their producers stumbled upon it and recorded it, what, 18 years later, and it became a, a huge song for them. Oh, that's fantastic. 
But yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of good music that year. There was a, it's funny that one of the songs uh, that came out that year was "I Saw the Light" by Todd Rundgren, which that's one of my favorite songs from the seventies. Is one of my favorites too, and it was not until six months ago that I realized that it was a man singing it. Oh wow, wow! I I don't know why I always assumed it was a woman, and nothing against Todd Rundgren. I just was like always. Figured that, that that for whatever reason his voice in that song I thought was a woman, but that's a great song. Absolutely. Oh yeah, there were there were some good ones mixed in. You just had to put up with some of the direct to get there. We're talking with Josh Carp here on Downtown uh, Television Shows uh, too. It was it was some greatness out there. It was the year that Mash debuted, along right. with Maud, Sanford and Son, and the Bob Newhart Show. Right. Right, also the after-school special, I believe, began that year. <laughs> um, I didn't realize that. That's awesome. And there were endless uh, endless cop shows and endless, you know, detectives. There was Banachek, as we've discussed before, Ironside, Cannon, Burnaby Jones, one of the two of the great crime fighters of all time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> was, it, was it our friend uh, Ricky at Super 70 Sports that posted... I think last night a picture of Barnaby Jones and uh, William Conrad. They're side by side. The well, old... says, says, do you want you want looking to solve crime? Do you want the fattest guy and the oldest guy you can possibly find? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> the whole <laughs> being being a young, very you know, being fairly young at the time, so you know, being completely unsupervised. Um, you know, I would watch those shows, and it just, I, it just, I couldn't begin to fathom what the story was behind Canon. No, you know, I, no. I was just like, I, what, who thought, who thought he was gonna, <laughs> he was gonna be solving a crime? But they had him run. Oh like, yeah, in the, yeah. In the trailer for it, you know, Canon just kind of, you know, trotting <laughs> away holding a gun. And it took me a while to uh, to figure out why, why Jed Clampett was talking so differently. <laughs> right, no cement pond on Burnham. No, 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 no. Uh, now I was, I forgot this one. Oh no, oh I got the wrong year. Never mind. I th I thought I had an awful one from that year, but it came out uh, uh, a little bit later on. Speaking of cop shows, though, and I, this was one of my favorites. I think we may have talked about it before, but Streets of San Francisco. Oh, great show. Yeah. That was, I mean, you know, to think you have, you know, a cop show starring Carl Malden, you know, who's like this real actor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with, you know, who's, I think he was part of the actor studio and all that. There he was, you know, making the American Express commercials and solving crime with Michael <laughs> Douglas. And my Michael Douglas, you know, he was young, but the, you, obviously you could see the talent that was there. Oh yeah, for sure. That was a, that was a great show. I was, also, that was, I think, the only year that Bridget Loves Bernie was on. Do you remember that show? You know, I love that show so much. Uh, Meredith, well, then she was Meredith Baxter Bernie, I think. Yes, because uh, she and David Bernie had become a real life couple. Right. It was. It was in odd ways, both very relatable and predictable, predictive for me, because one, I grew up in a town where everybody was Jewish or Irish Catholic, like with almost no exceptions. And th that was the story of, uh, you know, a, a wealthy 
Irish Catholic woman who who marries a uh, a Jewish guy who drives a cab. Um, and then, of course, now I'm I'm a, a Jewish guy who does not drive a cab married to an Irish Catholic. So <laughs> my life has come full circle to Bridget and Bernie. <laughs> no, I, I like that show a lot. Uh, another show, it was different. The Westerns were, were losing popularity by this time, but uh, they dragged out old Richard Boone. Do you remember Heck Ramsey? I remember the name. I don't remember the show itself. Yeah, another Western show. Uh, I don't think smoke was still on too. I think Gunsmoke was, uh, yeah, they, it was wheezing and coughing to the finish line there for, uh, <laughs> for James Arness. Uh, yeah, Miss Kitty didn't, uh, didn't get off the stool at the long branch saloon very much at that point. <laughs> Exhausted. <laughs> and you know, if you were a kid in those days, Saturday mornings to me meant fat Albert and the Cosby kids. Absolutely. That was that, um, it's so funny. I mean, on about eighty different levels to watch that today, right? Oh, just oh, you yeah. know, thinking about both both Bill Cosby and both the, and the content of that show, which you know, you would never get away with today. Certainly. Oh no. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I love Fat Albert. That was a great show. And there was also in in my because I'm doing unending research before I speak to you. I discovered the Paul Lynn show. Oh yes, <laughs> which I don't. Did that last more than one season? It, it, it shockingly did not. <laughs> but the description <laughs> is so good. It is about Paul Lynn plays a quiet, respectable attorney, right there. <laughs> because Paul like, Lynn just he he says to you immediately, "Quiet, respectable attorney." Right, exactly. I mean, I was just I was, whose whose home life is turned upside down when his daughter's new husband moves in with them. And I just thought, like, wow, that must have been. Even then, how could anybody be thinking, <laughs> you know, we're going to have a married Paul in number one, and number two that he's going to be quiet and respectable. All I remember about that is, other than the fact that it didn't last long, is I think Stiller and Mira were semi regulars on that show. Really? Yeah. I think they whether they were somebody's parents, I, I I can't remember what, but I just remember them being associated with it. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I I don't remember ever seeing it, but when I realized that it existed, it made me very happy. And then Charlotte Ray was on it as well. Right, right. I thought yes, and Charlotte Ray as well before <laughs> before she became Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Garrett. <laughs> We're talking with Josh Carp here on Downtown. Looking back at 1972, a year that produced great movies, that was, uh, well, the, that whole time period, some of the best films of all time. Godfather, I mean, I know you, you're you intimately uh, involved and associated with Orson Welles. Uh, to me, it always comes down to Citizen Kane or The Godfather for greatest picture of all time. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, I don't know if you find this, you know, as I get older, I don't need to pick one for sure. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, like, but those two, those two films to me really are, I, you know, the greatest, you know, kind of most, uh, even it, it's funny. I mean, like I, uh, like, even my kids can watch Citizen Kane and the Godfather and stick through it. Like they can't stick through most other black and white movies and they can't stick through most other movies from the early seventies, unless there's just like constant action. Um, but they, both of those movies, they love both of those movies. And, and, uh, and, and both of them really set the template for everything that was to come. Absolutely. I mean, that, you know, was it, they always say, you know, Citizen Kane was the first 
you know, modern Hollywood, Hollywood movie. And it really, you know, um, it, what, what I think sustains that movie always. And then the Godfather too. I mean, I think they're both, when it comes down to it, there are these stories about what it meant to be American in the 20th century. You know, they really mm. kind of tell the story of the country. I, I was talking to somebody the other day and we were discussing how, you know, if you had to pick five people who, um, you know, the, who were just the absolute symbols of the history of the 20th century, um, you know, like not non-fictional people like Howard Hughes, you know, as somebody who was part of absolutely everything that was going on, you know, um, but, you know, you, uh, um, Citizen Kane tells, you know, this, the story of the kind of ambition that we still, you know, kind of see today and the corruption and things like that. And the Godfather is, you know, the story of the immigrant experience in the United States. So it's really, you know, both are just, you know, I, I I've decided no longer to choose. No, and, and and what a year for Brando, who had been uh, oh a struggling to find a hit for the last, I think several years probably before that, and uh, came out with The Godfather that year, and then also Last Tango in Paris that we we look at a little differently today based on more current information. Uh, but boy, at the time, it made Brando the hottest actor on the planet. Right? Yeah, there won't be a remake of that for sure. No, 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 <laughs> no. no, no. <laughs> Nobody's greenlighting that, but yeah, no, there was a huge year for Brando and it was, um, you know, uh, uh, what's it called? It was a great year for, you know, comedy. You had, uh, the ruling class with Peter O'Toole, which mm. is one of my favorites, um, played again, Sam and, uh, what's up doc, which it, of all the movies, you know, uh, that the recently deceased Peter Bogdanovich made, that is my absolute favorite. I just, you know, can't that, um, is, is I don't know, just it, it's so endlessly funny in this really r- ridiculous and silly way. It's like it's, it's the perfect whatever anyone thinks of Barbara Streisand. She's just undeniably great. In that oh, film. absolutely! I mean, another film. I don't know how I got in to see this because I wasn't old enough. But I, they weren't they weren't checking IDs back in those days, and I no. and I, I remember being uh, absolutely flummoxed in so many ways by seeing Deliverance. Oh, that, I mean, I probably saw that like three years later, maybe when I was like nine. Whoa! (laughs) On TV. Yeah, it made a big impression. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I never wanted to go either to the south or on on water again. Right. (laughs) That, That movie, it's funny, I mean, how much that movie has affected People, you know, I would say, what, above, you know, the age of 45. You know, we all, everybody's just like, oh, yeah, it's a wow. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's like. I, I, met, I met Ned Beatty once. This was back in the 80s. And uh, met him at a radio station and uh, talked to him about what a fan I was of his career and mentioned this, that, and the other thing. And when I got to Deliverance, he goes, you want to know something funny? I said, yes, I do. He said, Squeal like a pig, my idea. <laughs> really? I, I said, really? He goes, but, yeah, but that, what I added to it was not uh, not really in the script. And he said, now I, that's going to be the first line in my obituary. <laughs> <laughs> He's got, he always, I, I read um, 
there's a book about the making of network and you know he has that fabulous thing oh. network where he gives peter finch the lecture about how the world <laughs> operates and he wasn't on he literally showed up that day shot that scene and left that was his wow. only you know involvement and it was a one-day deal and they just said here's who you are here's the here are the lines and he did it and it's i mean it's unbelievable it was one of i, I consider you know one of my favorite scenes in any movie ever made because he's a great 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 actor because you're on tv dummy <laughs> it was also now there had been other disaster films but but the one that really sent the genre into high gear a poseidon adventure right right that was yeah i was i was just it's, it's funny i was discussing this with somebody literally two days ago we were discussing how that was the beginning of and i think it's hard for you know uh people do probably appreciate now, but I mean, you had like these disaster movies where gigantic stars were in them. Right. Right. And I think you airport know, where, I mean, kind of started like, that, you know, right? If, if you re if you made a movie about the Bermuda triangle and the stars were like Denzel Washington, <laughs> you know, and like Gary Oldman, and, you know, I, I can't even think of, but Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, you know, the cat, the cast for, uh, the Towering Inferno was Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, and William Holden. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's before you got the Fred Astaire. And all. Right. And there was a certain a certain love boat quality to it as well, because you'd see people that, as as our, our old friend Gilbert Gottfried used to say, that you thought were dead, and there they were and still able to do the job. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's why, yeah, that God, we're... That's so sad about Gilbert. What a great! Did you ever uh, have him on the show? We did, we did, and he was he was wonderful. And he was he used that phrase in talking about his podcast. He said we would we would go through uh, lists of people we wanted on the show, and and we would find them and be be surprised they were still alive, and then reach out to them. But they were they ended up being great guests because they had all these wonderful stories. Right? No, he. I mean, I, I uh, certain, you know, they they had what like pat mccormick was on all the time i mean they really you know found the great old showbiz oh yeah and he was such a fan and so knowledgeable of uh, especially early television uh, for me uh, as much as i always enjoyed his stand-up comedy listening to him on his podcast was i think my favorite bit of work that he did through the years because you got to see more of the real gilbert yeah oh for sure you know he was that show was just Amazing. I, I, you know, you talk about old TV. I read some somewhere online that when uh, he was ill, he was at the doctor and they wanted to have him do math to test his brain function. And he said, I won't do math, but I'll sing the theme song to Car 54, Where Are You? <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like, that's the way to go. Exactly, exactly. All right, what's the update? What's going on with you and Ricky Cobb? Where are we on the projects? Well, Ricky and I are um, are in the middle of, uh, we're, we're about to be out pitching our uh, 70s-themed uh, animated series. Um, so we're hoping to get something done on that pretty soon. We are uh, doing, um, have you ever had Mike Gerber on? No, no. You're still? 
he publishes a magazine called the American Bystander, which is kind oh, of like yeah. old-fashioned humor, humor magazine. I love it. Yeah, oh, it's great. And he, and he does it with uh, Brian McConaughey, who... Um, mm, from you know, you, from Lampoon. The, uh, yeah, who's, I think, the only guy who wrote for the Lampoon, SNL, and SCTV. Um, he's the, the, you know, strange trifecta, but he was, he's, <laughs> he's the guy. And, um, and it's, he features a lot of really good people, like, you know, like Meryl Marco writes for him sometimes from, uh, you know, the original Letterman show. Um, and anyway, we're working on a special Super 70s edition of that magazine that's going to come out at the end of the summer. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, and we're still, we're having, you know, we're, we're you know, still pitching around the uh, the 70s encyclopedia and kind of amazed that we have not uh, not found a home for it yet, but we'll, we will. Excellent. Well, we look forward to all that. Always enjoy talking with you, Josh. Thanks for squeezing us in this afternoon, and we'll catch Thank up you with you again. Thank you I enjoyed it. Good stuff going back to 1972 with Josh Karp here on Downtown the podcast. Our thanks to Josh. Thanks to the great Bob Ryan as well. And thanks to you for joining us. We'll be back and do it all again next week right here on Downtown.